Welcome to our podcast for Harvard Journal of Hispanic Policy, a premier publication focused on public policy issues that impact Latinx and Hispanic communities in the U.S. and Puerto Rico. Today, you'll get an inside look into the stories that shape our Latinidad and propel us forward. Hola, this is Rodrigo Dorador. I am a second-year master's in public administration student at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and co-editor-in-chief of the Harvard Journal of Hispanic Policy. I'm excited to be with you today hosting a conversation with Mayor Michelle de la Isla, the first Latina mayor of Topeka, Kansas. Joining us for this podcast, we have Yasmin Serrato-Muñoz and Catherine Dondero, who are also students at Harvard University. Uh, Yasmin and Kathy, ¿Cómo están? How are you all doing? Uh, what are you all studying? Uh, um, hi, this is, I'm Catherine. Um, I'm at the Harvard Extension School. I'm getting my master's in government. I'm currently working on my thesis that's focusing on international adoption and children with special needs and how to advocate the best way for them. Um, I'm also a small business owner. I'm from here. Wonderful. Hi, I'm Yasin Sarada Munoz. Very excited to be here. I'm a first year, first year master's student in public administration. Uh, doing a dual degree with the Warden Business School and really focusing on finance and how the government interacts in this in this private sector space. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Your perspectives are going to be great. And I'm really happy that you could join us to speak with uh, Mayor Michelle de la Isla, who's joining us uh, as well. Just a brief introduction. Uh, she was born of humble beginnings in New York, faced many challenges at a young age, early in life, her mom fled for safety with her and her brother to Puerto Rico to live with her grandparents. By age 17, she was homeless and at 19, pregnant. Rather than feel sorry for herself, Michelle made a conscious decision to overcome her circumstances and finish her education. She moved to Kansas in 2000 and graduated from Wichita State University with a Bachelor's of Science in Biology after eight years. That summer, she worked as a teacher for Upward Bound and unfortunately discovered that others faced challenges similar to hers, igniting a fire for advocacy and service that to this day cannot be extinguished. She relocated to Topeka and soon after became a single mother of three. In 2005, Michelle joined MANA National and traveled around the country educating women on financial literacy. In 2010, she became executive director of the Topeka Habitat for Humanity, and in 2013, she was elected to city council and served as a deputy mayor in 2016. She was elected as the first Latina mayor in 2018 and currently serves on the Youth Council Board of the National Conference for Democratic Mayors. She is a graduate of the prestigious Bloomberg Harvard City Leadership Initiative for Mayors. She is a shining star and a beacon of light in Topeka, where she is one of the tri-chairs of the county's economic development strategy Momentum 2022, and she was also my supervisor over the past summer where I worked on engaging with community members uh, in conversations about the Momentum 2022 strategy and the future of Topeka and Shawnee County. Let's get to it. Topeka is 15% Latino, about 80% white. You're the first Latina in the mayor's office. Someone look at this and ask, how did that happen? But <laughs> in my eyes... In an already polarized world, this is a great learning lesson to everyone about how to work across political, racial, gender, and economic divides. For you, Michelle, what was the biggest takeaway from winning the election when it comes to working across difference? Um, it's kind of funny. I was able to collaborate with uh, Kate Charles Graham and write a book, uh, write a story for her book, uh, Why I Run. And... Um, 
the way that I described what happened was that think of the hardest thing that you'll ever have to do and then strategize exactly for how hard that's going to be and then multiply that by 40 because the amount of work that you think you're going to have to do and once you get to that extreme that you think okay there is no way that I could do more that's what you're going to have to do in order for you to win a race like this one um so yeah it was a lot of work it was crazy I mean we outperformed out fundraised everybody and still the race was only won by 501 votes so it was not an easy task and how so you won by 501 votes how what differentiated you from the other candidate oh dear god everything i mean so like the the other candidate was a local Uh, the other candidate was a male he happened to be caucasian um the dad of the other candidate was um very affluent very well-known lobbyist in our community um the the other candidate did not have any government experience other than lobbying at the state level. Um, there really was no huge track record of like community involvement. So like I was the CEO of Habitat for Humanity. I was a CFO for Housing and Credit Counseling before. I had done national work with MANA, um, empowering women, um, Latina women, on how to understand their finances so that they could become self-sufficient. Um, super involved in the downtown process and my opponent was nowhere to be found when we were doing all these things. However, miraculously, um, the day before the primary election, he received, and for those who can't see me, I'm quoting, a <laughs> flyer in his house that somebody let him know that, that, that there was this thing that said Michelle de la Isla Democrat and my opponent Republican. And <laughs> He was like, did you get this? And I'm like, no, I haven't heard anything about it. Oh, well, I think I'm going to call the media on it. So the media took the bait. And the first thing on the newspaper right before the election was that I was a Democrat and he was a Republican, invalidating all the other candidates. And then, of course, as you can imagine, the only two people that rose to the final ballot were he and I, me with the name recognition and then him because it's a red state. So... (laughs) Um, so then after that, what started happening, which I refused to do was the character assassination. Um, and it was really interesting that the primary I wanted with 8,000 votes. And I think that he won by 4,000, I think. I mean, so it was like a significant difference, but by the time that we got to the election, there had been so much work done on my character assassination. Like for example, I have a son with severe persistent mental illness that has been in foster care because he was a danger to the his sisters. And they started talking about that. Um, somehow, um, of course, anybody who's an attorney knows about the Nexus Lessa system that you're able to pull information on people. Miraculously, somehow it was found out that because my son was in foster, uh, foster care, I had to pay child support. So all of a sudden I was a dead peep parent because people didn't understand the way the system worked. Um, The other thing that they talked about was a lot of attack on the fact that I am a single parent and I am fully employed while I am a mayor. And I think that I'm one of the few, if not one of the only mayors of a major city that is full-time employed as well. Um, And they were like, she can't do it. You know, how's she going to devote time to her family? You know, how is she going to be the mayor? Uh, Is she saying that $40,000 a year is not enough? Our families live on $40,000 a year. And I'm just sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, I mean, these are the arguments that you would have never had, had it been another male. Um, And most importantly, had it not probably been a minority that was pretty much low hanging fruit, our value is familia, right? So um, it was a lot of work, but 
I, I always, our joke was that I always did what Auntie Michelle talked about because it's just part of my values and Rodrigo and I worked together for a long time so he knows how I operate. I don't believe in bashing anybody. If there's something to be done, if there's somebody to remove, you do it, you do it swiftly without damaging their reputation. Um, but there's one thing that I will not do. I will not allow somebody else's behavior dictate mine. So I would tell the team whenever they wanted to like get somebody to do something or say something publicly or, or denounce that he lived in his parents' basement till that year, I was like, no. We are going to focus on the issues because here's the deal. If I don't get elected, the community's not ready for me. And I will not give my kids the example that I'm going to start bad-mouthing somebody to get position. Because you just don't do that crap. If, if, and, and I think that as part of that, that understanding that I, on my shoulders, whether it's true or not, hold the responsibility of representing not just for Latinos and Latinas, the Latinx community, but, but also... You know, I am opening the door for other women. I am opening the door for other people that are younger, that are not retired, to want to be a mayor. I am opening the door to other single parents to want to do this. Mm -hmm. And if I'm going to do it by stepping on somebody, I am setting a crappy example. Mm -hmm. This is great. I think that's something that a lot of folks campaigning right now could learn learn about. (laughs) Preach! Most definitely. I mean, you've spoken to this a lot in the sense, like, you have all this things you're facing as you were running, but research shows that Latinas, it takes, up, it takes us about seven to nine times to be asked to be able to run. So we can start women, running. Women, women, period. Women seven in general. Times. Latinas even higher sometimes. Yes, correct. Um, was there a moment where you're like, I'm going to do it? <laughs> and, yeah. How did, so what, what was the woman like? And how did you tell your inner voice, Cállate. I'm doing this. <laughs> okay, so, so in, in, in both situations, it was really funny. The first time when I ran for council, um, I was asked several times. Um, I, I shared with the Latinx caucus yesterday that, you know, I was really involved in downtown redevelopment and I thought that I wanted to run for office. But, you know, it's like that. I think I want to do this, but you never really even know how the hell to do it. Um, but I really wasn't acting upon doing it. So when I heard that the person that was in my district was running for mayor, I was like, oh, no, 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 I'll help you out. But the kicker for me for that race was that my youngest daughter, whom, when her sister had been going to all of these council meetings with me as we were advocating for downtown, started understanding a little bit of the system, right? And Rodrigo can tell you that I do everything in my kitchen table. So, like, we have family meetings, like, legit family meetings. It's like I'm calling a family meeting, and people come in, and we have food, and we sit down, and we discuss an issue. Is there a PowerPoint deck? No, there is not. It's, it's, there's, there's probably a combination of coffee, chocolate for the girls, a pop for the girls, and alcohol for me. There, but there, you know, there was tamales one day. Yeah, there was tamales one day. Yeah, meeting. Yeah. So, um, so, so I had the meeting with the girls, and I said, "Hey, babies, they're asking mommy to run for council." And uh, Lorraine looks at me with these beautiful, big brown eyes, and she goes, "Mommy, is that like being president?" And I'm like, no, mama, no. I, I said, you know, remember those meetings that we go? And they're like, yeah, the big bench that, that's in that room. And I'm like, yes, yeah, sweetheart. And I said, they want me to do that. And my daughter, my daughter looked at me and she said, mommy, if you run and you win, you're teaching me that I could do anything. Mm. And um, at that point in time, there was absolutely no, uh, no question in my mind that the stakes were high. And, um, and, and after all the challenges that we were living through, because I mean, they didn't have their dad in their life. It was just them and I, I was like, oh my gosh, I need to make this happen for this kid. So it was kind of funny because 
now that I'm retrospectively thinking about this, it's not that I didn't know what I was getting myself into, but it just was that that deep desire to give my daughters the example that I know that they were not getting anywhere else visibly. And, um, and to show my daughters that, because they know our life, they know that our story is not perfect, right? It doesn't matter what your story is. If your heart is in the right place and you work really hard, you could make something happen. Um, so that was that race. And then for the second race, it was kind of funny because as typical me, um, I, I'm not good at politics, man. I'm just not. I mean, if you sit down with me, I'm going to be who I am, whether you are the president of the United States or whether you are the janitor. I'm going to teach you the same love and respect and we're going to have an open conversation because, you know, this is who I am and I want to know who you are. Um, and I came home and, and, and I had done this leadership Topeka class, um, which is really interesting because I just had that same experience of being in the balcony and having that peer consultation just today. Um, and um, in, in my class, I asked, my, my, my question was, people are asking me to run for mayor and I don't think that I'm the right person because I'm burnt out with the politics and I just, I don't know if it's my turn to open up the door for somebody else or something else. And unanimously, my peer group and the whole leadership Topeka class was like, you need to do this, you need to run, you need to run. But then I come home and I'm talking to my daughters and I tell my oldest daughter this time, I'm like, man, everybody wants me to run for mayor. I'm just so freaking tired. Here I am another Tuesday night, come back home after the meeting and I just, I just want to sit down and I just like get so frustrated because when people don't do things the right way, you know, they're trying to like talk to each other and like do side deals when that's not the form of government that we're in. And my daughter looks at me and she's like, who else cares as much as you do? You know, you need to do this. What are you waiting for? And I just wanted to both slap her and hug her <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> it's like, mira muchacha, I love you, I love you. Um, but, um, but that was one of those moments that I was just like, okay, so I guess, I guess we have to talk about what this means and if we're going to go through this as a family because it's not a I'm going to do it, it's we're going to do it. Um, and what are we going to give up if we do this? And we had these conversations and... I mean, they are like the coolest kids in the world. Um, and um, they were up for it. We were up for it as a family. And But yeah, it was, it was my girls. I mean, like, I know that the stakes are high because I know that, like, like, like as minorities, we hold the weight of our, our, our ethnic group and our faith or all of our diversity with us. Um, but nobody trumps my kids. And... Um, when they said it was time and that they wanted me to do it. Now, don't ask me about what else they want me to do in politics because Rodrigo knows everything that they want me to do in politics. And I'm like, no! <laughs> so anyway, so that, that was my call. So I actually listened to the podcast that you were on in, on August 1st, 2019, um, Carry As You Climb. Oh, sweet, with Mayor Whaley. I love her. And I absolutely loved it. I, like, thought you were just amazing. And... um. I actually really, what really spoke to me about the podcast was you talking about how you felt like you were always non-traditional in the world of politics, in the world of advocacy, and you kind of always felt like the underdog, but you also turned this into being a voice for the people, and you turned it into a voice that has advocated a lot for children um, who are kind of like you in a way, and I found myself asking and wanting to know more, um, especially now. Um, as I go forward with my research, just how did you know, at, at what moment did you know that you were advocating for the right things, but also how did your non, quote unquote, traditional 
aspects make you the powerhouse that you were and make you the unstoppable force because I like I, I just found it amazing that you didn't see those differences as the powers that they were because I thought they made you just remarkable wow um so first of all that is that is what I would consider putting a lot of power on me that I don't still think that I have I think that, and I talked about that yesterday when I spoke at the Bloomberg Harvest City Leadership Program, talking to people about um, getting involved and in, in becoming a fellow for a city. Um, I think that all of us struggle with imposter syndrome. I can't imagine how it feels for all of you to be in Harvard University and walk around the campus and see diversity, but there's one of these things is not like the other. There's not a lot of there's not a lot of us around here. All the diversity know each other. Exactly, and, and everybody does that, right? Todo el mundo is like, ah, oh, mira un cafecito, sí, café. You speak Spanish, so let's go. <laughs> oh, mira, I like tamales. Oh my God, yes, come on. Um, but um, that's right. Yeah, right. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, so I don't. Let, let me tell you what I think about your passions, um, and and whether you know that it's right or not. Um, one of my favorite quotes comes from Dr. King, and it's life's most urgent and persist, persistent and urgent question, and I know that I'm getting butchering it, is what have you done for others? And if your passion is leading you to do something that is outside of yourself and that there is no way that somebody could repay it back for you, but that you know that you're doing it with your heart, with love, for the right intentions, because only you know your motives, okay? then you're on the right track. If every night you're able to, even though you've worked 90 hours in a week and barely slept, and you still wake up the next day with the passion to just keep on going, and you start seeing little changes, even if it's in one individual that you've been able to impact, you're doing the right thing, okay? Um, so I don't, I don't know still that I am a powerhouse because I still look at myself when I wake up in the morning and when I am getting ready or like in a day like today that I was in a classroom with a whole bunch of brilliant people discussing issues on diversity and, and, and you know, and talking about belonging and inclusion and equity. And I still am very thoughtful of how do I fit in, you know? Um, because no matter how much we succeed or we outgrow, only we know the path that we have walked and most importantly, how that path has impacted us. Um, so I don't think that I know that I'm a powerhouse is the, the, the short answer to that. And um, how do I know that what I'm doing is the right thing? Um, because, and, and I think that I have, I'm a scholar in the sense that I don't have a PhD. Um, but I, I am a voracious reader. I mean, Rodrigo has been down to my, ha in my house and he's seen the ridiculous amount of books yeah. and the stacks. Yes, and, yeah. you know, so when he did laundry in my house, um, <laughs> sometimes he would fold the stuff in my room because my bedroom is the room right next to the laundry room because I didn't want him going to chaos land yet, which is the third floor, which is where the girls live. They're, they're, that's a whole different story. But, um, he could tell you that in the stack next to, in my, in my, in my nightstand, there's like nine to ten books at all times and then i'll finish one and i'll throw it in the stack of books that i have read and then somehow miraculously six more books show up um so i have done a lot of research on what is successful in in the realm of of i don't want to call it charity work but i would say i would like to call it 
um, understanding social factors of, of, you know, children and their zip codes and, and how to ensure that they have opportunity. Um, and one thing that I don't believe in is toxic charity. So like if, if what I am doing does, and, and I'm not saying that it's not good for you to, for example, give to the homeless individual that you see a meal, right? But it's one thing to give somebody a meal or to pay their Uber so that they could get to a safe place than to give them money if we know that that individual has an alcoholism issue and is going to use that to harm themselves further, right? So the whole concept of toxic charity is how do you, how do you empower individuals to figure their way out? Um, and and how, how do you, and for me, my passion has been how do I work with children and families to ensure that, that, that the young people around you understand what opportunities are presented to them that they could reach to if they want to. But I think that as society and as government and as systems, it is our job to ensure that those resources are equitable. Thank you for joining us in part one of our chat with Mayor Michelle de la Isla. Join us for part two, where we talk about economic development and how she mobilizes her supporters. Have a good one.